Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hi, everyone. Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petro Medical, and this is Hills and Valleys. Another great episode for you. We have with us today Dr. Uli K. Shetapati, who's an MD, MPH. Um, I want to give you a little background on him before we jump into it. He's a speaker, he's a physician, a researcher, and an innovator. He's passionate about delivering artificial intelligence-enabled solutions to physicians to improve patient outcomes. Now, his work with the Crest Network in developing a clinical decision support platform earned him the Pioneer Award for innovation from Kaiser Permanente, which is right here uh, in Northern California. He also received the Morris F. Collin Award for his research with his team from the Permanente Medical Group. And uh, to connect with him uh, and learn more about his work, you can also visit innovatormd.com. And aside from that, he just published a very fascinating book we're looking forward to reading more about called Punish the Machine, The Promise of Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare. Doctor, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Omar, for having me here. Absolutely. So, you know, why don't we start with your background? So what, what got you to pursue medicine? Well, uh, while growing up in India, uh, there were only two choices for us. Uh, <laughs> the smart kids either picked engineering or medicine. Um, and I'm not that great with numbers. I hated math, so I picked medicine. <laughs> That's how I got into medicine. But actually, what I wanted to become uh, as, uh, yeah, as growing up as a child is uh, I wanted to become a scientist. I wanted to become an inventor. So. It was very fascinating to me to look at machines and to look at um, things that work, and that we take it for granted, but uh, we don't know much about. So I was very fascinated with those machines. So I wanted to become a scientist and an inventor. Interesting. And I, you know, it seems that a lot of physicians, um, they see medicine as a way for them to extend the use of science and use science as a tool. I guess, in a more practical environment. Did you see yourself in that regard when you were younger? Um, at first, it was just fascination. And then once I got into medicine, once I got into medical school and realized that so much of what we do in medicine and, and, and that affects people, that affects patients and how much good we can do through medicine. You know, it is one of those fields where you can make life and death decisions for the patient. Mm -hmm. You can change somebody's life forever, whether it's good or bad. Um, and then you can have a solid, positive impact on the society. And society itself looks up to healthcare providers and physicians uh, to do this job. When you were younger, uh, who, who did you look up to? Um, my father was a, a great uh, uh, role model for me. He, he was an engineer. But he had that uh, inquisitive, uh, exploratory mindset. You know, he would always question things that, that happened around him. And so I kind of learned a lot uh, from him about his philosophy of life and how to do good in the society and, uh, and how a single person's contributions can, be, uh, can have a major impact on the society. Wonderful. Wonderful. And if you don't mind me asking a rather personal question, 
What was the most memorable thing your father ever told you? Huh. <laughs> you can take, take a moment to think. Sure. Uh, there were many things. Um, but um, uh, one time uh, what happened was that I, 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 I took some money uh, that was supposed to be to pay my uh, college fees, and I actually bought a drum set, <laughs> a jazz drum set. It was expensive, um, and uh, th that was a significant amount of money that my father gave, um, but I missed, misused it. And then later on, he found out about that, that I didn't pay the college fees. And so I went back and asked him, hey, uh, you know, sorry, Dad, I did this. And he did not blink an eye. He said, okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll pay the fees. And so he gave me the money. And that totally, I mean, I knew my dad was cool and, and he was a very calm and quiet person, but that uh, really blew me away. Wow, wow. And so how have you carried that lesson, you know, through life and more importantly, like into your work as a, as a scientist, as an entrepreneur, as a, as a physician? So, um, so I've, 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 I've um, incorporated some of those values in my own work life and family life. Um, and, and the way I look at it is that we are all human beings. And when you are a human being, you are bound to make mistakes. Uh, that does not mean that that person is bad or that does not mean that you know it's always going to be that way. Um, and how you show grace and how you show compassion to that other person, whether it is a coworker, whether it is your boss, whether it is your patient, um, I think that makes a big impact on them and how you respond to those uh, situations. Yeah, that's what I learned. Well, you know, on the, on the topic of that, you know, so part of, the, part of our, our show here is we like to start our listeners off at the top of the hill to get a really good glance of the state of things as they, as they are before we head down into the valley. Um, but, tell, you know, let's, let's start with AI, you know, since that's what your uh, uh, book is about. So where, where are we today with AI? Because some people think that AI is coming and other people have accepted the fact that AI is already here. So what's, what's the current state of AI right now in the world and then more specifically in the world of medicine? So um, a lot of the industries have gone through the digital revolution where digitization of data uh, much earlier than healthcare. Uh, healthcare is probably the last industry that hasn't been fully digitized yet. Only recently, like about a decade ago, that we started using electronic health records where we started capturing data. Um, so I think, you know, AI to be, uh, to work and to be useful and to be something that can actually provide value, it, it has a long way to go in healthcare, but in other industries, obviously, it is, you know, automating a lot of the workflows um, and uh, giving much better insight uh, in making decisions, uh, whether it's business or otherwise. Uh, that's, that has not happened yet in healthcare, but we are, we are seeing very early signs of how useful AI can be in healthcare. Mm -hmm because we're just uh, getting the data in a digital format and then now we can actually run 
tests and uh, run algorithms on it and see uh, some of the insights that you can get mm. from it. So it's it's really surprising to hear that, Doctor, because, you know, just on the way to work, I mean, I used uh, Waze, or I'm sure you used a GPS. That's That's got an AI in it because it gives you, date, you know, minute-by-minute minute, uh, updates. We use Google and YouTube search, which has an AI in it to find the funny cat videos. So a lot of trivial things in our life are actually powered by AI. So why is it that, you know, an industry with such, you know, some of the, depending on, on where you go, the, the smartest and top performing uh, people in the population that go into medicine, why is it that it's taking this long to adopt AI? So medicine and healthcare in general have this tradition of uh, being analog. A lot of healthcare that has been practiced is based on the personal connection, the trust between the patient and the doctor and the compassion that a physician or a caregiver shows to a patient. So there's a, a big human element that is part of healthcare. In fact, most of it has had been that way for centuries. Mm. Only recently, you know, maybe a hundred years ago or so, we started looking at the science behind medicine. So medicine was all art. Now we are slowly understanding the science part of it. And uh, most of the science is either driven by academic institutions or the industry, like pharma, medical device. But then the science was mostly targeted towards coming up with new treatments, coming up with new drugs. And so the focus has been mostly on how do we come up with new care models or new care ideas where, where it can generate revenue? And uh, over the last 50 years or so, healthcare has become more of a fee-for-service type of situation where the cost of care is dependent on how much, how many clinic visits, how many operations, how many drugs you prescribed, how many lab tests you ordered. Um, but with as we start collecting data, the real-world data through EHRs, electronic health record, now we have an opportunity to see whether what we were doing in the past, how is that affecting the outcomes for the patient? We never had so much data available to us before to actually see what happens when we give drug A versus drug B versus drug C, or an operation or no operation, uh, whether you know a test is useful or not. So those kinds of evaluations we were not able to do in large populations uh, using large data sets. So now with the availability of this data through electronic health records, we have an opportunity to make a difference, to bring in new science uh, the data science piece into healthcare, and that is what is exciting about it. Interesting. Do you feel that, um, you know, it, here in Silicon Valley, uh, when we look at technology, we, we accept it as a part of life in terms of how it augments our skills and makes us better. But that's not always the case when you leave the valley. It's, we we kind of live within a bubble out here sometimes. And so out in the rest of America and the rest of the world, 
even though physicians are and nurses and, and medical providers are under this kind of strain, do you feel like they are they are psychologically prepared to begin adopting technology to understand that they are not capable to do this all on their own? I think I think that that change will take some time, especially in healthcare. Uh, yes, it is a complex field. Uh, yes, it is uh, driven by you know the it's a human powered system. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what we are seeing in other countries is that where there is a single payer and a single provider which is the government in, in some situations, like, like in England or Singapore and other areas, they are able to, and, and even in China, they are able to collect data on everybody, and then they are able to change the way they were practicing medicine mm-hmm. and be able to drive those positive outcomes. And so we, we have a, a long way to go to become that, um, but at least we know that it is doable. So it is doable, and it is showing positive results. So the adoption will slowly kick in. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the big barriers is that uh, healthcare business in the United States is it's very scattered. You know, there are a lot of pockets, a lot of different entities dealing with data. And so one of the things, one of the disadvantages with that is that you cannot put everything together and then study that data. So that's why it's taking longer for us to implement these these uh, uh, these technologies. And you mentioned earlier, you know that uh, you know healthcare is rather uh, steadfast and conservative to pick up uh, different technologies. And it, although it seems logical, it wasn't uh, that long ago that we finally started adopting and using electronic medical records. So now we have an influx of data. Um, what, what's being done with that data right now in your average hospital? So uh, if you think about electronic health records, it was not a voluntary um, adoption. Really? It was um, pushed in um, and encouraged and incentives were provided by the government. And so there's a lot of you know, you know, pushing and prodding to make that happen. I'm glad it, it, it happened, but the problem is that electronic health records were not designed um, to, to, to solve the, the, the problem of the quality of care. They were designed to, number one, to bill for services. So you document what you did and so that, so that you, you generate a bill. They were designed to document what the physician or the care team did so that you can prevent malpractice. Um, They were designed to document the things that you did so that you are compliant with regulatory agencies. You know, hey, are you doing these quality checks? Um, All that is great, but it does not solve the biggest problem. And the biggest problem is how does providing care change for the better for the patient and the physician uh, once you have done this? It does not. It does not uh, positively impact. Let's say if I saw 
1,000 patients of ankle sprain, right? My next patient, after 1,001 patient, will get the same care that I provided for these 1,000 patients. I'm not using the data that, I, that has been collected on these patients to improve on the next patient that I'm going to see. So science kind of got stagnated, although there was so much potential there to actually improve the care for the next patient that is coming in. Now, I took the ankle sprain example, but imagine if it's a very complex case like sepsis, like heart attacks, like, you know, so those, those diagnoses have a very complex way of dealing with um, the treatment, the assessment, the prognosis, and all that. Imagine if you collected all that data on those thousand patients, now you have the capability to figure out what were the steps that were involved to get to a positive outcome? And can we use that knowledge on our next patient to make the care better and the outcomes better? So one of the downsides of the EMR or electronic health records has been that physicians were forced to document things although they know that it's not going to make any difference to the care that they're providing. So in a way, they were doing a lot of mechanical work, a lot of clerical work, um, getting frustrated as the fee-for-service system only compensates the work that you do. And if the compensation for each unit of work goes down, they, they started seeing more patients, they have to do more procedures, they have to do more things. And so it became a very uh, a destructive force. And we see that as one of the reasons why physicians are getting burnt out. Mm. Now, instead of people doing all that work, instead of physicians doing all their work, what if a machine does that work? Will that relieve the work of the physician and also the stress and the amount of effort that goes into that, it definitely does. And what if you automated a lot of those processes where a physician doesn't have to click these boxes or check the boxes, but have the machine automatically record things um, and come up with preventive solutions, come up with uh, suggestions for you know treatment options, suggestions for you know testing. Um, that would solve a lot of the problem where you can actually get a better outcome using the machine learning and the, and the artificial intelligence that this data can generate. And so your, your thoughts are that, you know, essentially the EMR was introduced, doctors and, and many of their uh, uh, colleagues became glorified number crunchers doing, you know, uh, clerical, work. clerical work. Grunt, grunt, grunt work, and nobody went to four years of medical school and five to eight years of residency to come out spending most of their time doing that. And you mentioned in your book that you know about fifty percent of physicians they report burnout in the U.S. Exactly, so, physicians are have the you know pretty very high burnout rate and also high suicide rate. Uh, let's talk. Yeah, well. let's talk about that because that's an ugly area of medicine that nobody wants to talk about. So a lot of physicians report burnout. I think. A report uh, from the AMA 
four or five years ago stated that 49% of them said that they wouldn't they wouldn't have gone done <laughs> medical school and done it like if they had to do it again they wouldn't they wouldn't go into medicine That's but let's true. let's talk about the suicide rate so there are doctors out there who are who are taking their lives because of the burnout tell tell us a little bit more about that so in a, in a typical fee for service system what happens is that <clears throat> let's say you're seeing 10 patients a day and you get paid, let's say, $100 a patient or $50 a patient. And then somehow the payer or the insurance company decides that, oh, we are paying too much. Let's uh, cut the rate to $80. That means you have to see more patients to be able to maintain that income. And you know, the regulations, the medical legal risk, and also this documentation for uh, billing purposes becomes more and more onerous with each year. And so they kind of start spinning their wheels really fast. And, and that is one of the reasons why, and, and they have to do that to maintain their income because the rates have dropped per, per patient or per case or per, test and so they they have to, they do more testing or more prescriptions more procedures just to maintain that income and that kind of becomes a very frustrating um, experience the other thing what you know physicians you know went into medicine number one to do good to the patients and some of the work that they're doing they know that it's not helping the patients it's not helping them and so that becomes a very frustrating uh, endeavor. Is this why, you know, in your book you mentioned the concept of spare the doctor, save the patient? Yes. Uh, so right now we are making the physicians work harder and harder and harder. Instead of that, you know, they should be doing more of what they do best, which is the human interaction the showing the empathy, the understanding of, of, of the intricacies of disease, uh, understanding the patient situation, building trust, um, being creative, uh, coming up with creative solutions. And that's what human beings and physicians do best. And that's where they're not spending most of the time. So the most of the time you know, they're doing in the, in the number crunching and, and data entry stuff, uh, which I think machines can do better. And then on the other side, the patients are not getting the best of it either because if the physician is more involved in actually data entry and trying to get, you know, the billing right and the codes right, they're not spending enough time with the patient to actually be helpful. And if the data is not helping the physician make the right decisions, then that means the patient is a loser also in this equation because mm. they're not getting the right care which they would have if the system was able to suggest the right treatments for this for this condition or the right testing or you know based on how the outcomes will be uh, changed based on the treatment process mm -hmm. and so patients could be healthier too and so a solution for you in, in your eyes a brighter future is to utilize the power of, of AI the power of these uh, computers and technology that we have to not only augment but help the physicians and nurses to not spend time doing the grunt work but spend more time healing. 
So, so you say, you know, the title of your book is, is Punish the Machine. Why, why do we want to punish the machine? Um, so most of us know that the, the electronic health record, the EMRs and EHRs, have been developed with, with pretty basic um, technology. Um, say, for example, from 1980s and 1990s, you know, that's the technology that they use. Um, and so, in a way, we are pampering those systems. We are not getting the full value of the data that is in that system. Uh, instead, we are punishing the doctors to do more work, you know, entering the data, but the, but the machines are very lazy right now. We are, not, we are pampering them, not expecting them to give us more information, more work, more, more insight into the problem. And they're not helping solve the actual clinical care. You know, how can the outcomes be better for patients? How can we prevent disease? How can we um, postpone some of the illnesses that start very early and then become chronic diseases? Um, I think machines have a lot to contribute, but it is we have to take that initiative to make the machines work harder and smarter. Mm. So, you know, it's an interesting concept about, uh, about how you get people to adopt technology. Um, I don't think that has changed uh, in medicine. It's, I believe that uh, a lot of physicians and, and medical practitioners are still very reluctant and conservative about it. Um, and we see this going back all the way to Ignaz Semmelweis when he suggested you should wash your hands uh, before dealing with patients. And it took 20 years for his uh, colleagues to adopt that. So there's this bias or cognitive bias that exists that people hold very, very closely the thing, the old paradigms that they're used to when new evidence comes along to challenge it. So to avoid what happened to Semmelweis and spending 20 years for physicians to adopt, what can be done now by the community, by uh, industry to help move this along faster? So one of the things I suggest is that <clears throat> the way research is done right now is through funding mechanisms. And, and the funding mechanisms, you know, they have their own priorities, you know, whether it is pharma, whether it is you know, NIH. Um, but I, 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 would, I would bet you anything that if the healthcare company has an advantage, and that is they have the data, and if you can figure out to squeeze uh, uh, insight from that data, which will benefit the company in the long run, um, that would be the best research because that is real-world research. Um, let's say I have um, 2 million patients in my system and I'm monitoring their diabetes and I can figure out some things that research from outside, let's say research done in Canada or research done in East Coast, will not help because my population is different. My population in California is very different from the population in the South, for example, because the risk factors are different, the level of disease is different, and, and how they respond to treatment are, is maybe different. So. Each healthcare entity has to come up with a plan on how they're going to develop this, this uh, 
uh, knowledge base, new knowledge coming out of their own data. And that can be done through machine learning and AI. And then use that information to make the outcomes better. Um, instead of relying on some published data from somewhere which is may or may not be applicable to your real world situation. Now, as we know with human beings, data is really the last step in terms of influencing us, right? We, we're influenced by emotion, things that we can lose. How, how, do, you, how do you get your, your peers to begin to, maybe not adopt, but begin to look at AI and, and higher technology in a different way? There's a big need for education. <clears throat> uh, most physicians don't know much. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote this book is that to educate people that there is a there is an option where you, uh, the way you study things and the way you understand what's going on with patients, and uh, that has been lacking, um, I think. So lacking where though the in, education in in medical school in residency. Medical school. So 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 it should in your opinion it should start at, at medical school. Yeah, it should start at medical school, and it should be a continuing process. Um, one of the uh, misconceptions physicians have is that, oh, you know, if it is research, it has to be done in academic institutions. We don't do research. You know, we don't care about research. Um, well, I think now it is possible to do research because once you have the data, you can do research and apply those findings into your practice very quickly instead of waiting for somebody to you know, do the work and then publish it, and then it slowly goes into the guidelines, mm -hmm. which may take 10 years or more you know, for that for those findings to be implemented into the practice. Mm -hmm. You can close that loop of research, you know, testing, and, uh, and also implementing and looking at the outcomes, and then the cycle can continue, and, and, and the value of, of um, that work, you can see the immediate benefit in, in patients' lives. And with regards to the research, you know, the, the, the conversation, you, you know, goes, I guess goes back to data because in order to have machine learning and later on AI, you need data. So between the industry or the companies that create the technology to capture the data and the hospitals who bring the patients in to create the data and then the patients themselves who actually contribute to making the data, who, who owns the data at the end of the day? Um. <clears throat> Obviously, the data has to be owned by the, by the patient. And when I say own, it doesn't mean that you know, they cannot designate other people to look at it, to study it. Um, uh, obviously, hospitals are generating a lot of data. Um, medical devices, you know, whether it's drugs, you know, pharma. But the ultimate, the ultimate pathway for that data to give insights has to go through the physician. So a physician becomes the gateway to that knowledge, the ultimate decision maker. And of course, while consulting with the patient and assessing you know, what the patient's choices are, and so it's, it's more like a shared decision making between the physician and the patient, right? So everything that happens outside of this, these two people, that should then be funneled that knowledge, that insight needs to be funneled through the physician and the patient 
in, in, during their interactions. Mm. So let's let's get you know a little bit out of the valley, start going to a, to a better place and up the hill. So let's imagine that uh, five years from now that uh, physicians and medical practitioners have begun to uh, widely accept AI and higher forms of technology, and that starts to free up their time. What what does that future look like? What what do you see happening in the practice of medicine at that point? I think physicians will be much happier because a lot of the you know the scut work or the grunt work will be done by the machines. I think they'll be spending more time interacting with patients. I think um, they will find out a lot more, uh, they'll get a lot more insight from, inter- from these interactions with the patient. Um, I think the patients will be happier. I think the outcomes will be much better because they are based on data and based on evidence, uh, based on the knowledge that, that has been created uh, through this process. Um, I, think, uh, I, think, I think there will be definitely positive um, outcomes that come out of this. Mm-hmm. And so you feel that, I guess in a funny way, technology is going to help free physicians to return back to the patient's bedside. Definitely. Do you think that there's going to be an improvement in care um, because of that human interaction? Yes. Um, so when, you, when physicians are inundated with uh, you know, the things that they're doing right now, they are not... Um, they lose that capacity to think through the patient's eyes, through the, through the patient's, you know, what does the patient really want? Because it becomes very mechanical otherwise. And so now it, it is more of that human interaction, it's more of that trust, it's more of that engagement that helps them make the right decisions for the patient. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that, you know, when you see when patients come in, they, they spend less and less time with their physician and nurse. And so many times, especially when you're sick, you, you feel very much like a victim, a victim of the disease, and you almost uh, uh, can't fend for yourself and you rely a lot on the medical system. Do you feel that having nurses and doctors spending more time with the patient will get them out of that victim mentality, maybe perhaps to take a more active role as a protagonist in their healing story? Yes, uh, because because the information that they get is more accurate and more reliable. And as the physician spends more time, uh, that engagement itself, you know, where the physician is educating the patient, right? So they feel more empowered about, about their own disease processes. You know, what are the things that they can do uh, to mitigate some of the you know, bad things that can happen? Uh, and what are some of the things that they can do to prevent these side effects and things like that. So yes, uh, it'll definitely engage the patients more and give them more, um, I would say, knowledge and freedom you know, to, to use that uh, to take care of a lot of things that, uh, that don't need a, a specialist or a physician. Very nice. Well, you know, we're very thankful for the time that you spend with us, but we have a few you can call them rapid-fire question. You can answer them as fast as you want or take as much time as you, as you want them. We'll do, we'll do three today. So first one, uh, of course, your book is out on Amazon, Punish the Machine. 
Um, and we're going to have you back on the show so we can dive deeper into the book after we have our team read it. But what book do you gift or give, give you know, to, to people most often? Say somebody, mentor or colleague. <laughs> um, ah. Well, one of the things that I've, I've, I've noticed is that, you know, in my career, um, one of the things that I noted was that there were some things that I was really good at, um, and I didn't know that. And so what helped me was a book called Strength Finder. Um, it, it's an evaluation that you can, that you read the book. Uh, the premise is, that, is simple, is that everybody is born with some strengths. And the sooner you figure out what your strengths are, the more happier you'll be, the more successful you'll be, and the more you'll enjoy your work life. So I, that's one thing that I give a lot of my students, uh, give that book. Very nice. Strength Finder. Do you do, um, do you have Netflix? Uh, yes, but I don't watch. Oh, you don't watch. <laughs> so in general, mm. what would be your favorite show? Um, On or off Netflix? Oh. All-time favorite. <laughs> I don't have, I like the, 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 the family comedies. Um, uh, I used to like Friends, and it's not there anymore. You know, simple stuff, that, that everyday stuff, uh, that, that is funny. Uh, I like that. You know, there are some shows called, uh, I think it's called uh, In the Middle. Uh, they have kids, and I have kids, so I understand you know, the, the stuff that parents go through and mm. simple things. Nothing. You know, as, a, as an innovator and as a physician, um, you know, your time is very limited, so when you're... Um, driving or commuting or traveling, uh, what do you like to listen to? Do you listen to music, podcasts, Audible? I like I like music. Listen to music um, mainly because it, it it relaxes my mind and also um, lifts up my spirit. Last question for you: um, Of all the platforms, what's your favorite social media platform and why? <laughs> if you have one. Yeah, um, there's only one I actually use, which is LinkedIn. Um, I see that um, you know there's much better uh, sharing of um, intellectual activity on, on LinkedIn, um, and so that's the only one I use. I I do have Twitter, but I don't use it that much. Well, Doctor, again, thank you very much for spending some time with us. And uh, again, you know, I'm going to leave it in the show notes. Uh, so, Punish the Machine, The Promise of Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare, and that's on Amazon, correct? That's right. It's on Amazon right now. I'm holding the book. The, the best thing about this, and I, I have to highly recommend this, especially to medical students and, and residents, because, you know, you're spending a lot of time reading. This book is literally only, it looks like 113 pages. So, you can finish that in an afternoon. It's high, high yield, high value. It, you know, it talks about the main things you need to know about AI and healthcare, and it's a good time to start learning about that. So we'll have you back on the show maybe in a few weeks. So for the listeners that are listening now, please go ahead and get the book, read through it, and when we have Dr. back on, we're going to dive much deeper into this topic and learn about punishing the machines and, more importantly, freeing physicians and nurses from the drudgery of data <laughs> and for a brighter future. So thank you. Thank you, Omar. Thank you, thank you for having me.